Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John will take us through his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John concluded his thoughts and insights on the conditional witness examinations that were conducted before the trial began. In this episode, he discusses how he used footage from the Jinx in mapping out his case, as well as his team's approach to the jury selection process in the Durst trial. That's all coming up right after the break. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. Sometimes if you hear heavy traffic rushing by, that's because John is doing the call during one of his early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Lastly, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. Moving on to the Jarecki interviews, talk to me about your preparation of those interviews for trial. How did you go through them? How did you discuss them with your team? And how did you go about deciding which items from 2010 or 2012 and from the DVD commentary that you were going to use? So I'll tell you, I have gone through those statements, and it is, when you add them all up, it is something like, by my memory, 1,106 pages. And I've gone through them numerous times. The two people that worked on that part of the case were myself and Ethan. By Ethan, Lewin means the audio-visually savvy Deputy DA, Ethan Milius. And so the way it started was that I went through the uh, Bob's transcript and I would highlight, I would find a clip. So the clip might be, this is one of the clips that I remember. Yeah, Kathy and I would go out to dinner and over time, you know, I, we would go and I would say, why don't you get this and, you know, why don't you get that? I'll have this and we can share. And over time, Kathy basically said, no, you eat your food and I'll eat my food. And that was a really important clip because what it demonstrated was that at a certain point in time, Kathy had enough of this guy. And so that simple replication of, Kathy getting sick of his bullshit of, you're, I'm going to decide what you eat and what we eat, we're going to split it. 
said a whole lot. So what I would do is I would mark that clip off, and I would say clip regarding RD and KD relationship. And then Ethan would pull every clip, and then every clip would be on a spreadsheet, and every clip would have a number. And then when Ethan and I ended up doing the opening statement, and when I did the cross-examination, we would go through every single clip and decide if we wanted it in the opening or if I wanted it in the cross. And then we would have it in, maybe we'd take it out later, then we'd order up. So thousands of hours were put into it, thousands, by both Ethan and I. And that was a key to the case because one of the issues that was very clear is that we knew this case backwards and forwards. We didn't know it a little better than the defense did. We knew it a million times better. And so uh, that gave us a huge advantage. Number one, they didn't know any of the evidence in the case. And if they did know any of the evidence in the case, which they didn't, they didn't know where it was or how it fit into other evidence in the case they did not know. So basically, even areas where we recognize that, well, you know what, there's a clip later on that they could use that will help them, you know, fight back against the clip we use, they never would ever see it. So, you know, we gave them everything. You know, in the end, talent is helpful. Elbow grease is irreplaceable. But if one side has better lawyers and those lawyers also work harder, you're in trouble. You better be better lawyers than the other side or you better work a lot harder than the other side. If the other side's better and they work harder, you're fucked especially given the set of facts that they had against them as well. That's the trifecta right there. Well, but, but again, you know, listen, again, as I said before, part of the things that we tried to do was to make them at every choice in the road, every fork in the road. We knew there's a fork in the road, right? So kind of the passive way to do it is you, you identify the fork in the road and you see where the other side is going to go. And once they go to the left, you respond, oh, they went to the left, here's what we're going to do. We went way past that. We not only pushed them on which fork of the road we wanted them to go, we made the forks in the road. Right. Uh, and they had no clue. And I will tell you, that was some of the most fun that I had during the whole trial and during the whole process, was figuring out how can I get them to do what I want them to do and have them thinking that they're doing exactly what's in their own interest and what I don't want them to do. And I loved it so much more. I think it's worth talking about the series of clips of Bob talking to himself from the 2010 interview that you put together. I imagine you did that to lay foundation for the bathroom audio, but was there another purpose to that? Well, there were a couple. First of all, one of the clips, that we put together was Bob literally practicing an answer that by the time I knew the jury was going to hear it, they knew it was a lie. My memory was I did not knowingly intentionally lie. I did not knowingly intentionally lie. Something like that. And I knew that one, he's practicing how he's going to say that. And two, by the time the jury heard it, they would know that the statement, I did not knowingly intentionally lie, whatever it was, that the jury was going to know that itself was a lie. So they were going to hear Bob on tape practicing a lie. So 
I wanted that out there. The second thing was is that it demonstrated that Bob has a habit of talking to himself. That became important, and he, and he does it when he doesn't even know, when he can't even help himself. It became important because, in the end, and they never really followed up on this. Do you remember, in opening statement, Garen said he was going to prove that basically Bob knew he was being taped, and so he deliberately said those things in the bathroom. Do you remember that in opening? Yes. They never went back there and tried. Okay, so a pretty basic thing as a lawyer that you want to do is make sure that whatever you say in opening, you are planning on addressing, particularly about what your client is going to say. You have a note that says, okay, i got to cover that in his testimony. They never covered it. So I knew that the jury was going to see that Bob had this habit of speaking to himself, that they were also going to see that he oftentimes didn't know he was doing it, and that, therefore, it would explain why it was he was doing that in the bathroom, that it was not some intentional act. And that, finally, if I had any jury, even though it was legal, if I had any jury who was saying, gosh, that's not fair, I can't believe, you know, they're using his recordings, that Bob had been told by his lawyer repeatedly, Bob, you're wearing a microphone. They're hearing everything. So that even if a juror, even if a juror was told, hey, listen, that's a legal recording. Just because it's legal doesn't mean a juror is going to like it. So if I can, I want to explain, hey, not only is it legal, but here's why you shouldn't be upset about it. Bob is wearing a giant microphone, okay? So when you're wearing a microphone and you know, not just you should know, but you literally know you've been previously picked up talking when you're wearing a mic, then in the end, that's on you. So that was the third issue that I wanted to make sure was, presented to the jury and that they kept in mind as they evaluated the evidence. Got it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our conversation next moves on to the jury selection process. In the event that you would like to revisit Jury Duty podcasts that cover that area, listen to bonus episode 16 in season two, where we track the experiences of two of the jurors through the jury selection process until the first time that they saw Robert Durst. And now we continue my conversation with John Lewin. Heading into jury selection in February of 2020, what was your strategy in terms of seating the jury and if you want to explore venue and which court you were in and which jury pool you were selecting from, what can you tell me about your strategy on all of those things? So it's very interesting. Originally, our jury consultant wanted the case to be downtown. They believed that a downtown jury, which had less education, had less wealth, that they would really dislike this rich guy. And I adamantly disagree with them from the start. My belief was that jurors on the West Side, who tended to be very liberal, the exception would be that they would hate a privileged person like Bob 
And more than that, they would be ashamed and embarrassed about him because he would be a reflection of them. So as an example, let's take a person of color from South Central who is a security guard. They're not going to look at Bob Durst and see themselves. They're not wealthy. They're not privileged, et cetera. Conversely, let's take a studio executive from the West Side who's wealthy. There's going to be an embarrassment about Bob that a juror in downtown court is not likely to have. So I knew that although historically our airport jurors can be very problematic in violent crime cases, they tend to, for instance, oftentimes feel sorry for gang members. They don't understand it. You know, you take a Compton jury who live with gang members, and they understand it. They get it. Some of the West Side jurors are terrible. That being said, I was very confident that the jurors we would have would be wealthy, and they would be very embarrassed and concerned about Bob's privilege. And I asked questions on the questionnaire, which which we wrote. That was done by us, not by the jury consultants. Um, we wrote the questionnaire. Uh, they offered a few suggestions, but it was ours. We had questions that talked about, you know, what different charities, groups, people contributed to. And I think the defense got very excited when they saw a lot of, this is before George Floyd, but there was a, I'd say 70% of our jury pool in questionnaires had contributors supported the ACLU, maybe 75%. Normally, those are not good prosecution jurors. Um, and in addition, a very high percentage, a little bit less, had supported uh, Black Lives Matter. So I think the defense looked at that and said, oh, this is going to be good for us. I looked at it because one of the big questions that I asked in the trial, the question here was, what cases did you follow? Almost everybody would, um, you know, would give certain cases, and then, you know, I would get information about what they filed and what they thought. But the big question was something like, what are your overall feelings about the criminal justice system? And we get a lot of answers like, well, criminal justice system unfairly favors those people who are not people of color and who are wealthy. And because I've read every, every, you know, we read all the questionnaires, anybody who was saying that, I knew that that was not going to be a good deal for Bob Durst because I knew he was going to come off as incredibly privileged, self-centered, I'm above the law, and that they would, not only would they dislike it, they would have a sense of embarrassment that somebody who was coming from somewhat similar background, they'd be, they'd be offended by it and embarrassed. Now, the other thing that I knew is that because of the length of time on the jury, that we were going to get two kinds of jurors, people that were retired and people who could financially do it. And the people who could financially do it were going to be divided into people who were wealthy or people who had unlimited jury service, which mostly meant they had government jobs, which also mostly meant that they tended to be pretty educated. Although we had some one of the best jurors on the case, um, phenomenal juror, juror number 18. I'm not going to give his name, but he worked for the post office. He was an incredible juror. Now, he's a guy that doesn't have a lot of education. He got everything. There was not a sharper, smarter juror on the case. And one of the things that I, that I loved about him was, is I was right next to him when Bob would testify. And, and I would look over at him, and he was very expressive. He couldn't help himself. And, you know, the look he would give is like, what the fuck did he just say? Sometimes I would, when Bob would give some crazy answer, I'd look right over at him, and he, and he would, you know, 
you can't talk, you can't communicate, but his face would show, oh, my God, did he just say that? So I knew that the combination of where we were and the amount of time the case was going to take, that I was going to get the jury I wanted. Now, what's ironic is, in the end, their jury consultant, they wanted to be at the airport court. And I remember telling my team, both at the beginning and once we got our jury, okay, we got a jury that is beyond belief of what we could have wanted. They wanted the same jury we had. So remember, they ended up liking this jury. So this isn't a question of, wow, we got a great jury and they didn't get the jury they wanted. They wanted many of these jurors, including Carmen, our foreman. By Carmen, Lewin means Carmen Kleteka, the foreperson of the Durst trial jury. As I referenced earlier, I interviewed Carmen along with another juror, John Okanishi, in season two, bonus episodes 16 through 30 of this podcast. And I remember telling my team, okay, both of us got the jury we wanted, both sides. One of us is wrong, and I'm telling you right now, it ain't us. And it wasn't us. You've now heard most of the interviews that I did with Carmen and with John. What was your feeling about each of those jurors going into, you know, jury strikes and the the end of the voir dire process? Well, Carmen was, in my mind, the most important best juror on the entire panel. And that is for a few reasons, almost all of which I knew, one of which I didn't. So the key part of, obviously, this case divides up into the following. Explain who Bob is. Well, I can do that to any juror, all right? So a juror that I would have been concerned about is a guy who's been divorced two times whose wife took a bunch of money from him, okay? That would not have been a good juror for me because potentially that guy is going to see in Kathy one of his ex-wives. So I, I don't want someone like that. So other than that, I'm pretty confident that with the evidence that I have about the relationship, unless somebody themselves is like a domestic violence abuser, any sane, smart jury is going to understand and be offended by the relationship with Kathy and Bob's lies about it, etc. Number two, I wanted somebody who would identify on the jury with Kathy, if possible. Carmen was a med had gone to medical school when she was of similar age to Kathy, which I knew. I knew that was going to be very helpful. I also knew Carmen's background, which she's discussed a little bit, so I'm comfortable saying it. Carmen was born in Mexico. You know, Carmen, she lost her parents when she was very young. You know, Carmen grew up with relatives. Carmen had to work and fight for everything she has and is incredibly accomplished. To some degree, Carmen much more so than Kathy. But Kathy came from a lower or a middle, lower middle class, middle class background. And Kathy worked and fought for what she had. So I was also pretty confident, since I knew that the defense was going to be trashing Kathy, that every time they trashed Kathy, Carmen would see herself. So I'm going, wow, this should be a great juror there. Number three, our case rests on demonstrating that Susan had made the call pretending to be Kathy, and that therefore Bob had a motive to kill her and that he had in fact killed her, et cetera. So I knew, because my wife is a surgeon, and I'd been through medical school and residency with her, I knew, unlike other people on my team, as soon as I heard the bullshit that Kathy had called the dean and not her 
a rotation. To clarify, Lewin is saying that unlike other people on his team, as soon as he heard the story that Kathy had called the dean and not her rotation, he knew it was untrue. I knew it was crap. 100%, that's an absolute lie. Any doctor that hears that, any medical student, their first response is they will tell you that's a lie. Bullshit. Didn't happen. My wife said it. Every doctor we know said it. Everyone unanimously. So to have someone who went through it and would themselves know is incredibly powerful. Fourth, I didn't know at the time, but I knew there would likely be some cause of death issues with this regarding timing. I knew that not only was Carmen a pathologist, she was not a forensic pathologist, but I knew from her jury questionnaire that she had worked for an extensive period of time at the Albuquerque County Medical Examiner's Office, and I knew that very likely, which turned out to be true, she had taken a forensic pathology rotation, had, had experience with that during medical school, and would have had to have had some experience and exposure during residence. So those are like the big parts of the case. Number four, I knew that because she did autopsy, she would understand that the idea that Bob Durst is going to have an entire fifth of Jack Daniels and then dismember a corpse afterwards, with the, it was absurd. The thing I didn't know, which is like the cherry on top, is I knew that Bob was going to blame Asperger's. And I specifically and deliberately asked questions. I wanted people on this jury who had friends and family members who were autistic. And I wanted it for a very certain reason. Because I knew and I know that for those people, those kids, family members with autism and Asperger's, there is a whole lot that they have to overcome. And the idea that Bob Durst would be, in essence, blaming who he was, either just his rudeness, violence, selfishness, or even trying to argue somehow that, you know, relates to the killings, that it would, they would not just find it to be untrue. They would be deeply offended and angry because of the spillover. Their kid has to go back to wherever they're going and now has to have people looking at them going, well, I mean, I guess, Asperger's can cause somebody to be violent. Look at Bob Durst. So Carmen had every single thing that we could have wanted. The idea that the defense left her on, you know, you'll have to interview them. I want to know. But they wanted her. Even to the point of when Carmen was going to, it looked like we were going to lose her because of her son. I did not want her gone. I wanted to have the trial adjourned for the week when she was going to be gone and then come back. And so I knew that if I said that, the defense would be against it. So I literally suggested to the defense in front of the judge, hey, listen, if when Carmen goes to Chicago to take her son to school, she needs to be excused. Now, I said that knowing that their response would be, whoa, wait a minute, because from the start of this case, whatever I want, they're against, and whatever I'm against, they're for. And, of course, uh, Chesnoff's response was, well, no, we, we, we are against that. She's a medical doctor. She brings a unique perspective to this jury. We do not want that to happen. Now, we never had to deal with it because Carmen ended up solving the problem herself. But it was so funny that even at the end of the trial, the defense wanted to keep this juror and was doing everything they could do to hold on to her. And that was primarily because they thought I wanted her gone. Amazing. Next, we discuss the other juror that I interviewed in season two, bonus episodes 16 through 30 of this podcast, John Okanishi. 
My conversation with Lewin about Okanishi took place before we released some of our juror interviews, and so Lewin is unaware of some of the statements that Okanishi made on the podcast. Tell me about John Okanishi and how you saw him going into the trial. So John was important. We had two jurors who had firearms experience. One was a juror that we lost either, I can't remember if we lost him over the pandemic or right when we, you know, right when we came back. He ended up having a health issue and we lost him. He was an African-American gentleman who was retired, who had been an FBI agent and a an agent for another federal bureau. I can't remember which one it was, maybe Department of State. And he had been on, I think he'd been on two murder cases where there had been juries, verdicts, and he obviously had firearms experience. And I loved him because he would understand that all of Bob's statements about what happened in Galveston with the gun were complete bullshit. And also he would understand why it was that you don't tell defendants certain things. You know, he would be great for us. The only other juror that had firearms experience was was John. So he was very important to me because anybody who has firearms experience, and, and, and although I am far from an expert, you know, I, I've carried a gun for many years. I'm aware of gun safety issues and Bob's version of what happened with Morris, where Morris has the nine millimeter and, you know, and he's, he's firing it like Dirty Harry and it jams. And the gun was literally pointed at Bob when it jammed. And then Morris picks up a round that drops in the sand and tries to put it back in. I knew that the idea that after that incident, that Bob ever let that guy near fire him again, much less went and bought him a 22 target pistol with a hair trigger. But that was impossible. So I wanted somebody with firearms experience, and John had that. The other thing that was clear about John that we remembered is John dressed very normally. And then all of a sudden, during the first opening statements, when the cameras were there, he was all dressed up. He also, after, you'll have to ask him this, after the trial ended, John was wearing very formal clothes the day they went out to deliberations and the next day. It's my belief that John was ready for a very quick verdict. Interesting. Based on conversations that you haven't heard yet, I think that's true. I think you were right. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin discusses preparing his initial opening statement and negotiating with the defense over the pretrial stipulation that Robert Durst wrote the cadaver note. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. 
Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.